We are still in middle of the Ten Commandments, and today's mitzvah is mitzvah number 35, and that is the prohibition against adultery. This mitzvah is told over here in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus. It is repeated in chapter 18 of Leviticus, and that's the first mitzvah of today, and that is not to do adultery. And the second mitzvah we're going to cover is mitzvah number 188, also from chapter 18 of the book of Leviticus, and that is to not get too close with any person that you are forbidden to be with on an, in an intimate way. So uh, to prevent people from committing a very flagrant sin, the Torah has an additional mitzvah, not specific to adultery, but to any one of the forbidden unions, and that is to not get too close, to not flirt, to not engage in any activities that could potentially segue to an actual sin, and therefore we're told to prevent any sort of rapport, any sort of kinship that could be the grounds for such a sin. Now, it's important to stress as a way of introduction, that in, in Judaism, in Torah law, adultery is a capital offense. Now, there's different elements of that, because depending upon the nature of the uh, the prohibition, the actual method of execution is different. And of course, it's very important to stress that in all of Jewish law and jurisprudence, it's actually very difficult on a technical level to actually execute someone because you need witnesses and the witnesses have to be rigorously investigated and they have to see at once and they have to warn, they have to warn immediately prior to the action if they warn and five minutes later the person does it, that would not qualify. It's a very rigorous procedure that the witnesses have to go through in order to actually come with a guilty verdict, so much so the Talmud tells us that if a Jewish court of law executes someone once every seven or even every 70 years, depending upon the text of the, the Mishnah in the book of Makros, then they are a murderous court, meaning that for a court to actually execute someone, it's exceedingly, astonishingly, fleetingly rare. Nevertheless, it does tell us a lot about how the Torah views adultery by telling us that it is one of the few mitzvos that carry the most severe of punishments. It's a capital offense. It tells us what the Torah's perspective is on this prohibition. And I would argue that in modern times, in modern society, there has been a drastic change in the attitude towards adultery. It's much more commonplace, uh, tragically. Now, I think it's interesting, if you look in the book of Genesis, it happens actually twice, uh, Abraham has to travel initially to Egypt, then eventually to uh, to the land of the Plishtim, and his wife is very beautiful, and he's worried that the people see his beautiful wife, and they're going to want to take her, and in order to facilitate that, they're going to kill Abraham, the husband. So he tells his wife, Sarah, Sarah, he tells her, tell them you're my sister, and therefore they won't kill me. Now, if you actually play this out in your minds, something very astonishing emerges. In our society, adultery has become, sadly, something that really happens often. Whereas murder, that's a big no-no. And in Judaism, well, both of them are, are, are capital offenses, and both of them are obviously unconscionable, and both of them are uh, of the most severe sins feasible. But our society, one's okay almost, it's not okay, but it's, it's, it's not criminalized and, and people understand, so to, the, so to speak, that this kind of happens. And one of them, of course, murder is unthinkable, unheard of. 
if you actually think about what the societies of yore, the societies that Abraham encountered, they actually had it the exact opposite. Think about it. Abraham is worried that they're going to want his wife. But after all, she's a married woman. Well, how do you solve that? After all, it's adultery. Adultery is a big no-no. Well, murder, it kind of happens. And in effect, what this tells us, the narrative, it tells us that in ancient Egypt and in the land of the Philistines, murder was kind of okay, but adultery, oh no, that's unconscionable. That's unthinkable. That we would never do that. Murder, well, it kind of happens. And I think it's interesting. Uh, it's kind of a commentary on the idea of, of, of Torah being a certain absolute truth that doesn't change with society, whereas uh, societies that we see uh, in the past and in the future and even as we live, it's a more dynamic uh, evolution to what people think is good and bad and what's true, what's moral, what's immoral, what's amoral. And I think it's interesting to kind of present the Torah as a contrast to that. We have the will of God, and it is fixed, and it's not subject to the whims of society and the changing winds, so to speak, of how society and how, to, how our culture views uh, activities. So there's a prohibition against adultery, and the Sefer HaChinuch, the book that we're using to guide us through the mitzvos, he lists four different reasons as to why the Torah makes this prohibition. And as always, these are reasons that he suggests, not to say that this is the, the real intention of God, but this is a way to kind of give a certain framework to the mitzvah. And like we mentioned in the past, it's encouraged, the Ramah encourages us, amongst other sources, to try to understand the mitzvahs as best as we can. So the first thing that he says is that there's a certain degree of fidelity, of organization that God wanted in his world. Uh, so for example, you read how Every species in the book of Genesis, they're supposed to be together. Whereas in the times of the flood of Noah, Rashi there tells us, quoting from the sages in the Talmud, Rashi tells us that the species started to intermingle. Certain species would mingle with other species, and those were not admitted to the ark, and they went extinct with the flood. We know today that 99.9% of species that have ever lived are extinct. And according to Judaism, we would say that many of those happened in the flood. These people, or not these people, these animals, these species corrupted themselves, and consequently they were not allowed to have continuity after the flood saga of, of Genesis. But we see, just interestingly, the Torah is saying that even animals, there's a certain framework that the Almighty is desirous of, and that is the species, they would stick with each other. And similarly, when there's a union, uh, a bond of husband and wife, that creates a certain framework, and that should remain like that. They should, there should be faithfulness and fidelity towards each other, and the mind is not desirous of people just being, uh, uh, being um, freewheelers and not maintaining the, the trust that they have with their spouse. That's the first idea. The second idea that he says is a very practical one, and that is we have to establish paternity. Right? A woman has a husband, so there's an assumption that we can make that the majority of the instances of intercourse are going to be with her husband. And therefore, we know who the father is. She has a child. We could assume that her husband is indeed the father of the child. And therefore, the child has to honor his father as mother. Well, your mother, you know, but who's the father? If we don't know, 
then it's a problem because you don't know who's your father, we don't know who's your sister, and there's many laws pertinent to that. It's very important to know who the father, who the mother is of every child. What happens if people, God forbid, are to uh, sleep around? Well, then we don't know who the child is, and we cannot attribute and we cannot establish uh, paternity. So, for example, there's an interesting law that relates to this. If a woman gets divorced, she has to have a moratorium before she can get remarried. And the law is that she, for three months, she cannot get married. Why? Because what happens when she gets married instantly, right after she gets divorced, she gets married that same week, nine months later, there's a baby, or eight months later, there's a baby. We don't know who the dad is. Is it the first husband or is it the second husband? We don't know. And therefore, the Torah tells us that we have to have a break, a three-month break, and that way we can know for sure that if the child's born, it comes from the second husband, uh, born meaning some, a few months later, we know this comes, we could, we could attribute it to the first or the second husband. And as an aside, we know today polygamy is prohibited, and that's a thousand-year-old edict. But by the strict Torah law, Polygamy will be okay, but only for the man to marry multiple women, but not for the woman to marry multiple men. And the question that people ask, wait a minute, is the Torah being sexist? Why is it unequal? If a man can marry multiple women, why can't a woman marry multiple men? So one of the answers that was given is that if a man has, you know, five wives, and they're all pregnant, well, we know who the husband is. Suppose a a woman has five husbands and she's pregnant. We don't know. Is it husband A, B, C, D, E? We have no idea. And that creates all kinds of halachic problems, and I would argue probably domestic problems as well. And therefore, it has to be that a woman can only have one husband, because otherwise we don't know who the child is, uh, who their father is. Regardless, uh, polygamy has been outlawed already for a millennia. There's another interesting question. It's a little bit tangential to the subject, but the question of artificial insemination. Uh, this was, of course, a, a recent, uh, relatively recent technology to be able to people, uh, couples who are uh, unfortunately or tragically suffering from infertility, there's all kinds of new technologies that have uh, ameliorated that uh, that really harsh and really painful experience. And there was a big halachic discussion as to what's the legalities of that. You know, can you get a sperm donor who is not the husband? Is that considered adultery? There's no act of adultery, but the result is all kinds of interesting questions that are discussed regarding uh, these questions, uh, these uh, modern innovations, and how halacha, how Jewish law is manifested in these new situations. So that's the second idea: uh, why adultery, uh, a theory as to why adultery is prohibited, and that is to establish paternity. In addition, there's a con- there's a element of Theft, you know, the man and the wife, they're together and they have pledged their lives and their loyalties to each other. And when someone comes and intervenes and someone takes uh, one of the spouses away from each other, that has a, that's tantamount to theft. And finally, the fourth explanation that we find in the Sefer Chinuch is that it can lead to violence. As we know, people are jealous, people are protective. And if someone's spouse is taken away from them or is um, someone else decides to uh, pursue them, that can lead to violence and even to murder. 
and many other problems. And that's enough. I, not that we needed more reasons, but it's an interesting uh, to look at the various dimensions of of what happens to a family, what happens to a union, what happens to people's lives, how lives are destroyed when people in a fit of passion, uh, they make very regrettable decisions. People could you know, invest a lifetime essentially with their spouse. They share everything with them. They share bank accounts, they file taxes together, but they have children together and they have to live together in the home. And, and then you know, the, someone makes a move on them or they move on someone else. And before you know it, They've done something very regrettable, and it's possible that everything that they've built can really collapse, and justifiably so, because if someone, uh, if a man commits uh, such a treasonous act, or, or a woman commits a treasonous, treasonous act against their spouse, then that, of course, is justifiable grounds for uh, for dissolving the union. And of course, the kids suffer, and the family, everyone suffers. It's just pain. And uh, it's, uh, it's something that we should be very careful not only to not uh, transgress, God forbid, but to also to take preventative steps to make sure that we don't fall into a spiral of desire or even a spiral of a relationship that could eventually, you know, something lead to something else. And there could be a, a slippery slope where someone makes some you know, comments that eventually, eventually, sometime later is going to actually lead towards a very regrettable End. And that, I think, relates to uh, mitzvah number 188, not to do anything that can bring you towards transgressing any of the prohibited unions. So many of the prohibited unions are related to relations, meaning sisters and daughters and granddaughters and mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law and aunts and things like that. But the one I think that's probably the most dangerous is this one, and that is adultery, someone else's, someone else's wife, someone else's husband, uh, married women, married men. Uh, it's very important, and you know, this is a unique phenomenon that the Torah gives a standalone mitzvah to be a fence around another mitzvah. You know, we have the idea of rabbinic edicts, the idea of you know, the Torah says, don't write on Shabbos. And the rabbis come along and say, okay, don't fiddle with a pen, because if you fiddle with a pen, you may inadvertently end up writing. That's an idea of a rabbinic fence or rabbinic edict to preserve a Torah mitzvah. That's the role of the rabbis. The rabbis are, are charged with responsibility to make sure that when they find a need, they enact a new rabbinic law, a new rabbinic edict. That's rabbinic law. This is a Torah. This is a verse in the Torah. I believe it's chapter 18, verse 6 and that of, Levit- of Leviticus. And that is a Torah law to not do anything that could potentially lead to transgressing any of the prohibited unions. I want to read the Rambam and the laws of Isurbi, the laws of forbidden unions, in chapter 21, where he details what this actually means. And this is, of course, the Rambam, he curates from all of Talmud and organizes it in, in, in a way that's uh, easy for us to read and understand. So from a strict letter of the law, adultery is only when there is uh, literal copulation, if you will. There has to be a, a, a literal intercourse for that to be transgressed. But there's another mitzvah, which is not to do anything that is creating a connection, and that, of course, can be something which is which is very egregious, and it can be something which is what may seem to be more innocuous. So he lists all the things, 
that are included under this second law, the law of not getting too close to a woman that is prohibited. So he talks about uh, other kinds of intercourse that are not, uh, there's no penetration or or closeness of skin. Uh, And he even adds uh, various gesticulations, not to wink, not to signal with your eyes, not to do anything with your hands, not to gesticulate, not to fraternize, not to engage in levity, not to flirt with some with with, with a woman that is prohibited. And, uh, he adds also not to smell the perfume or to even gaze upon her beauty, and all this is included in this uh, prohibition not to do things that engender closeness between someone and a woman that is prohibited to him. And he adds, if someone is gazing upon even a small finger of a woman that's prohibited to him, and his intention is to derive pleasure from that, that is included in this. And in addition, he even writes to hear her voice, which the Talmud says that listening to to a woman sing, it could be very sexy, it could create a certain desire, and that would be prohibited, and even to look at her hair, which is why, one of the reasons why uh, married women, and sometimes, uh, certainly in some communities, and the Talmud seems to indicate like that, even unmarried women have a, a tradition to, and a law, to cover their hair. Now he adds, what if someone wants to date someone to determine if there is grounds for a marriage? Obviously, in that case, not only ought you to uh, look at her, to investigate her, to see if she is, is, is a good candidate for you to, to date and to marry, but the Talmud says that if you don't look at her, you're not, it's prohibited. It's prohibited to marry a woman that you didn't investigate and didn't look at to see if she's, if she's someone that you could develop a, a deep relationship because what's going to happen then? You say, oh, I don't want to look at the woman and then you get married and then you look at her and you don't like what you see and then it's just going to cause more pain to everyone involved. And therefore, you're prohibited from marrying a woman unless you look at her. But that is permitted because that's not done with the intention of having the pleasure now, so to speak, Rather, it is something which is deterministic. You try to determine if this is a relationship that you want to pursue and maybe even to pursue marriage. Now, even though a woman who is menstruating is not allowed to be with her husband in an intimate way, there is an, an exception to this rule that a woman who is a nida, a woman who is menstruating, even though they cannot be, cannot be together intimately, but the husband is allowed to look at her and even allowed to enjoy her beauty because he has an out, so to speak. You know, a week or two later, she'll be she'll go to the mikvah, she'll go to the ritual process of ending her period of being a nida, and then she'll be fair game, and that's not a problem. Uh, that said, there's still a prohibition for of someone to be too light, light-hearted or, or to be too frolicky with his wife when she's a nida because that could potentially lead towards a, a transgression of, of that sort. Now, there's another very modern question that is raised in this subject, and that is touching. Included in this prohibition is to not do anything that creates any sort of carnal or lustful desire. So, of course, if someone uh, if someone touches in a sexual way, that would clearly be prohibited under this law, mitzvah number one eighty eight. But where is the 
where's the line between someone uh, touching in a, in a very cordial way or in a, in a business environment versus someone touching in a lustful way? You know, if people are on a train together and there's not a lot of room, so invariably the you know bodies are touching each other. Uh, is that is that a problem? Uh, sitting on a plane, this is this this sometimes shows up in, in in the news where people are sitting on the plane next to someone they don't want to sit next to them for religious reasons, and people make a whole brouhaha over that. Well, you sit on the plane. Everyone knows that experience of fighting for the armrest, but there's not really a lot of touching going on there. But some people want to be extra careful, and this is this is their grounds. This is the rationale for that. What about in a business environment, someone extends their hand? So what do you do? Do you shake the hand? Is that considered an act of closeness or is that just a formality? And that's where the discussion orients around. Uh, in some countries, some societies, there's there, people hug each other. Random strangers, they hug each other. Well, that seems to be a lot closer. Sometimes, you know, some societies have a custom that they meet someone brand new, they give them a peck on, on their cheeks. And that's – it's totally – Sterile. It's not a. It's, it's not sexual. It's, it's a formality. Well, some societies formality. Some societies it's not a formality. So this is the context for this question. And the general rule is that if it's something which is going to create a certain closeness or certain lust, it will probably be included in this category. Now, of course, it's important to stress that there's another component of that, and that is a lot of people are not educated in these matters. And they may be very offended if they extend their hand and the person refuses to shake it. Well, that's an, another problem. We're not allowed to offend people. We're not embarrass people. And we don't want to do that. We don't want people to look negatively, oh, this person is obeying the Torah, but they're, you know, they're, they're, very insens- they're insensitive or they're rude. I extend them my hand and then shake it. What do I have, leprosy? So it's a very sensitive question that has to be navigated uh, very skillfully and uh, I'm not going to render a ruling on this, but I just wanted to kind of give a framework for this discussion. This is where it is raised. Now, the sources tell us that there is a benefit or there's, someone is praised, there's a merit if someone adds more fences of their own. I know when I was in yeshiva in, in, in Israel, there were some students, when they would take the buses, when they would take the public transportation, they would remove their glasses so as to not see any women along their drive. Now, I, I, I don't want to give commentary on this, but I think it is noteworthy when someone says, I want to take another step that's not mandated by the Torah, but to kind of stop myself a, a step earlier. And that's essentially the idea here. The Talmud makes this clear, that the way that the Yetzirah works, the way inclination works, it's not that I get someone to do the most egregious sin on day one. It just, it looks for a certain opening. It looks for a certain, it wants to make a beachhead on someone's heart and someone's feelings, someone's desires, and let that to balloon and let that to mushroom. So the angle of trying to combat it is not to say, oh, I'm not going to sin. It's to say, I'm going to take steps to prevent this ball, so to speak, from getting rolling and to have a certain degree of of distance between you and the people that you don't want to, God forbid, uh, do anything that is prohibited, certainly, but also something which, that, that could potentially derail a relationship and derail a life. So included in this, uh, the sages here bring the laws of seclusion. There is a rabbinic law that a man cannot be secluded with a woman that they are not allowed to be together unless they are close relatives. So someone can be secluded with their with their 
mother or their sister or their daughter, but a married woman, uh, a woman who you, a person cannot be with, and some other person, unless there is enough people there, there's there's laws regarding this, uh, how many people have to be there, etc. But unless there is oversight, so to speak, if someone's with their wife, they could be with another woman, meaning in the same seclusion, because the wife's going to protect them. But if the wife is out of town, they're not allowed to have a woman to be locked in the same room with them because that potentially could yield towards something else. And uh, there's modern applications to this question as well. You know, what if someone has a video camera or video in their home and it's constantly – uh, taking a video of every, everything that's happening. Can they be there if there's a, if there's the help? If there's a cleaning lady there, can they be there? You know, the wife is out of town, or the, but the wife could check, or the neighbor has the key. The neighbor could come in. So if it's yeah, the neighbor theoretically could come in, but they would never do it. That wouldn't be a sufficient protection. But if the neighbor actually would come in, uh, something like that, then that would be a way around this problem. But the bottom line here, and this is the message that's being conveyed to this mitzvah, is that. The Achilles heel of humanity is this, or one of the Achilles heels is this prohibition and it's this desire. And the Talmud makes it clear, there is no apotropos for Arias, which means there's no safeguard, there's no guardian. No one could say, oh, I'll do this, but I'll save myself. Because the Yetzirah is an old and wily king, in the words of the Talmud, He's gifted, and he knows how to find that angel to allow man's heart to to stray and lead them down a path that ultimately concludes in some very uh, dangerous activity. And therefore, the Torah tells us, don't get too close, stand your guard, so to speak, stop yourself from getting too immersed in, in, in a relationship that cannot go t- further, and you'll be safe if you follow the Torah's guidelines, and hopefully all of us will uh, make sure that uh, that we are not endangering ourselves and endangering, and endangering our relationships by getting too close towards uh, people that we want to have a very respectful relationship, we want we, we, we to be very friendly, but to make sure that it doesn't go anywhere beyond where it is okay, and the Torah's guidance on this matter is very valuable and I would say it's very prescient because what may look as something which is innocuous can very quickly spiral out of control.